Anyway, so we are here to talk about my plastic credit and debt. As Steve said, this is the first in a four-part series on money. Um, Did you know that Jesus talked about money more than any other topic other than the kingdom of God? So um, we've got a lot to cover. So over the next kind of hour, hour and a half or so, we'll we'll, um, we'll try and do some of that. So we're going to start with two quick quizzes. The first is this quote. Um, do, uh, does anyone know who said these words? Who are the poor these days? You've got some people up north and in places like that who are quite poor, but they all have mobile phones being poor, and they've all got microwave ovens being poor, and they've all got televisions being poor. Does anyone know who said those words? It was uh, in an interview to The Guardian um, earlier this year. Um, <laughs> was it the Queen? No, it wasn't. Um, probably someone nearly as rich as the Queen. Um, it was Alan Sugar. Um, Alan Sugar, yes, the billionaire Alan Sugar giving poor people advice on what electrical appliances they're allowed to buy. Thanks, Alan. Um, maybe these people have mobile phones because you can get them from Tesco for six quid and it's a lot cheaper than getting a landline installed and you haven't got to play line rental and there's no minimum 12-month contract which you might have to install into a flat that you might not be able to afford to live in. Did you think of that one, Alan? Um, or maybe you need a mobile phone because you have to wake up at six o'clock every morning because you've got a zero-hour contract at Sports Direct and you have to wait for a text message that comes in telling you whether you've got any work or not. Or maybe you've got a microwave oven because you can't afford to heat the house, you can't afford gas and electricity, so you cook everything in that microwave oven. Or maybe you've got a TV because you can't afford to go out in the evening, you can't afford to go to the theatre or to the cinema or even to the pub, and so the telly is actually quite a cheap way of getting some entertainment in the evening. But anyway... Thanks, Alan. Really helpful input there. Anyway, enough talking about TVs. Let's move on to our second quiz of the day. This is a Samsung UE40K5500 40-inch 1080p Full HD Smart TV available from Argos or John Lewis, depending on how posh you are, for £379.99. It is, I am reliably informed, Full HD offers an exceptional smart platform which allows you to stream Amazon Video and Netflix direct to your TV and features ultra-clean view technology. Obviously, I have absolutely no idea what that means, but it does sound impressive. So here's the quiz. Um, You have ten different options of how you could pay for your Samsung TV. Um, I'm going to give you one minute to get into pairs and to work out what are the three cheapest options in terms of the overall price that you would pay and what are the three most expensive options. It's obvious that one of them doesn't involve any credit. The rest of them do. So a couple of quick things about credit before we start anything. Um, As Steve has said, one of my jobs here is to look at the Oasis Death Advice Centre and we talk about money management quite a lot. There are quite important questions to ask when you're thinking about what credit you're going to go for. We'll come back to those in a minute. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Stop talking and give me some answers. What is the cheapest way of paying for your Samsung TV? Everybody shout after three. One, two, three. Wrong. Obviously, all right, yes. Um, That's the only one that doesn't involve any credit. Um, uh, 
here is the list in order of what is the lowest and most expensive option. Um, a few quick things. If you are thinking about getting credit, it's important to look really uh, sensibly and, look, and think really hard about what it is that you are buying. Do you need it? Can you afford to go without it? Could you afford to save up and only pay the 37999 rather than anything else? Um, two really quick things to look at. If you are deciding, if you have decided to get credit, APR stands for annual percentage rate. This is the amount that you're charged to borrow money worked out as a percentage of the total amount if you paid it back in a year. The higher the APR, the more you will pay back. The next thing to look at is the length of the loan. The longer you borrow money for, the more you will pay back. So the message is shop around. Um, let's have a look at how much it, it would cost. So yeah, if you were to get out your savings, it would be 3799. If you um, if you could get a credit card at a low APR, it'd be £415.67. That APR is 16.9%. That um, is reliant on you paying it back in a year. Um, the thing about credit cards is that some people, you know, went to the NatWest Bank like I did when I was a kid and I opened a bank account when I was eight just so I could get those little pigs. Anybody remember those? Um, and I got all of those pigs, which is fantastic. And then I had a bank account all the way through my childhood, which meant that if I had decided to get a credit card when I was older, then I could have gone to them. I would have had a decent credit rating and I could have got a credit card at a low APR. If you weren't as fortunate to have that decent start that I had, this option is out. Um, a bank loan, £420. These are all um, if you pay it back within a year. If you can go to a credit union, it's slightly more expensive. A store card uh, would be £444.31. That's at an APR of 29.9%. That is through Argos. Obviously, John Lewis are far too posh to have things like store card rates on their website. Um, a high APR credit card would cost you 455. If you went to a payday loan company, it would cost you 47119. But the difference here is that you've got to pay it back in 30 days. A lot of the issues that we see coming through the Debt Advice Centre are people who just couldn't afford to pay a bill, and so they've just gone to Wonga and they've taken out 300 quid. And then suddenly they've got to pay it back in 30 days. And suddenly within 30 days, that 300 quid is 380 quid. And they can't afford to pay it because they didn't have 300 pounds 30 days ago. So then the interest rates start racking up. And that's when the charges come in. And that 380 pounds becomes a bailiff knocking on your door very quickly. Be wary of these ones. Your... Speedy Cash, your high street money shop, would be £604.76. I used to live just off the Walworth Road. You see these places all up the Walworth Road. 604 quid for a TV that's worth 380 We also see a lot of doorstep loans. This is the kind of thing that you know, kind of nice middle-class churches don't really get to see a lot of, I would imagine. But um, people who literally come and knock on your door and they promise you £380 so you could buy that TV. But then when you pay it back, the APR from the legitimate ones could be anything up to 272%. And finally, there's one more. Uh, your weekly payment store, Bright House. If you were to buy a television that costs £379.99 from John Lewis or Argos, if you were to go to Bright House um, in Elephant and Castle Shopping Centre and get it over three years 
the APR on that is 64.7%. Over three years, that would mean that your TV that's £380, you are paying £1,092 for it. Um, it might sound like a silly example, a TV, because when I was talking about credit earlier, I said that the first question to ask is, do you really need it? And you could maybe think, well, no, I don't. Or if I haven't got it in savings, maybe rather than going to Bright House, I could you know, look on Gumtree. I could try and get one secondhand. I could try and come to the library here and get on eBay and see if I could buy one. Somebody might be giving away a TV. But what if it wasn't a TV? What if it was a fridge freezer, a necessity? What if you'd just done your weekly shop, which you couldn't really afford? You came home and suddenly the fridge freezer died. Now, a lot of people in this room, that wouldn't be the end of the world. Let's say a fridge freezer is £279. This fridge freezer here, it's kind of your bog-standard kind of family-sized fridge freezer. I had a look online. From Appliances Direct, you can get that fridge freezer for 279 quid. Now, if that happened to a lot of people here, we'd just grab our laptops, get onto our nice internet connection in our nice houses, and we'd order one from Appliances Direct, and it would arrive tomorrow. Most of the food you'd imagine would be saved. Everything would be okay. It would be a bit of a hit. It might come out of your savings. It might mean that the rest of the month is quite tight. You might want to put it on a credit card that you could pay off. But a lot of us could probably just about stretch to that in a one-off emergency. But what if you can't? What if the only option to you is to go down to Bright House in the Elephant and Castle Shopping Centre? Do you know how much this fridge freezer costs at Bright House? Over the three-year period, it will cost you £1,326. It's the exact same fridge freezer. It's nearly five times the price. It's over £1,000 more expensive than if you can afford to buy it up front. And this, this is the hidden cost of being poor. This is why it's really important that we talk about credit and we talk about debt. Those in poverty pay a thousand pounds more for the same appliance. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you've got money, you can buy in bulk. You can jump in your car with your big boot, drive down to Tesco, get a month's worth of shopping, buy in bulk, come back, put it in your big fridge freezer, and then you save some money. If you haven't, you walk to the nearest little Tesco Metro, which costs a lot more money. You can only buy things in small quantities, which means you don't get the bulk discounts either. So your poverty makes you worse off. Or maybe you can't afford the gas and electric bills, and so rather than you having just a standard bill paid by standing order that most people would do or direct debit every month, you decide to go for a flat that's got a prepayment meter, which costs more money than the people who can afford to pay by direct debit. And it goes on and on. A poor diet means worse health. Not being able to afford warm enough clothes in the winter means worse health, which means that kids don't go to school because they're ill, which means that they don't then attain at the same level that richer families do. It goes on and on and on. 
So, and we'll come to today's Bible reading after this. What do we do about it? Well, as um, I've mentioned a couple of times, and Steve said, one of the reasons that I've been asked to give this talk is because part of my role here is to run the Oasis Death Advice Centre, which exists to ensure that no one struggles on their own with unmanageable debt. That's our mission statement. We meet with clients, we listen to their stories, we then get in touch with the people that they owe money to, and we try to arrange an affordable repayment plan so we can get them out of debt. I'll talk a bit more about the debt advice centre later on, but um, for now, let's just watch this quick video. Um, it's a minute long. Some of you might have seen it before, but I think it's worth watching again. Hi, my name is Cheryl, and I first came to Oasis Debt Advice Centre in January of this year, having been made redundant and having struggled for about 10 years with my finances. I suddenly realised that I needed help. And I'm really glad I came. The first thing that I noticed was the advisors not saw, didn't see my failures, but what they saw was my future. And that gave me energy to take responsibility for the first time in my life for my own finances. I also have two daughters, teenagers, who journeyed with me through this. And from their learning, the important thing for me was that they will never, ever get themselves into such a financial fix because it was quite a journey for all of us. We are now happy on a budget. One's doing her GCSE. The other one is at university doing her nursing. And the intervention of Oasis Debt Advisors in our lives has been such a tremendous help that I now volunteer to offer such support to other families in difficulties. So whether you're suffering from financial problems or you have time on your hand to join the community and volunteer, the doors are open. Please do feel free to come. You're um, isn't that an amazing story? When Cheryl first told me that story, she said that for generations her family had been in debt. It's all she'd known. And she said, now the cycle of debt has been broken. My teenage girls will not know what I've known. will have a different story because the cycle of debt has been broken. If I'm honest, I was a bit sad that she didn't use that line in the video because it's a great one, isn't it? The cycle of debt has been broken in this family after generations. We'll talk a bit more about that later on. But you're probably wondering, what do Alan Sugar, Brighthouse, and our debt advisor Cheryl have to do with Luke chapter 7? Let's have a look. Um, so it was Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. Tim read them to us earlier. Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee, Simon, for a meal. While he's there, a sinful woman comes to the house. It would not have been too unusual for people to enter the house while a meal was going on. This would have been kind of the done thing. You would have invited a teacher to your house, and then you'd have left the doors open so that other people could have come in to find out what they thought. Um, so what was unusual, though, was that it was a sinful woman, probably a prostitute, theologians think, who, came, who comes into this house. It would have taken a lot for her to pluck up the courage to walk into the house of a Pharisee. Theologians think that this is a sign of quite how desperate she was to see Jesus and to meet with Jesus. She walks in 
Um, and as you may already know, that this kind of meal it would have been around a low table. There would have been a low table in the centre of the room and low couches around it. And people would have reclined at the table. They would have lied down on their left-hand side, resting on their arm, and then they would have eaten with their right-hand side. And the way that they would have been lying would mean that their legs would have been out behind them. So the woman, when she came in, would have had easy access to standing behind Jesus and to Jesus' feet. Um, I'm sure that lots of you probably already know that, but when I listened to this story so many times when I was a kid, I always thought of a normal dining room table with a tablecloth and just had this vision of a woman trying to climb through this tablecloth and trying to work out whose feet were Jesus's. So, so even if only one of you is spared that misconception, then it was worth telling you that, I thought. Anyway, so, um, so she stands behind Jesus, probably intending to anoint him with ointment, um, but then she's overcome with emotion and she starts crying. And her tears fall onto Jesus' feet. So she unbinds her hair and she uses it to dry Jesus' feet, which in itself is another sign of how desperate she was to meet Jesus. Because in that culture, Jewish women never unbound their hair in public. Finally, she anoints Jesus' feet with the ointment that she's brought with her to do that. Um, even that's interesting. Usually the ointment would have been poured on Jesus' head, but the woman anointed Jesus' feet, probably to show her humility. It's at this point that Simon, the Pharisee, the host of this party, says, if this man really was a prophet, he would know what type of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus responds by asking Simon that simple question about debt. A creditor has two debtors. One of them owes him 500 denarii, 500 days wages, and the other owes him 50. Which one, when he cancels both debts, will love him more? And the Pharisee replies, quite simply, the one whose debt was bigger. Correct, says Jesus. And then he moves into his point. Verses 44 to 47. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. What's this got to do with Alan Sugar, Bright House and Cheryl? The whole thing, all of these stories are about structural poverty. There's two books which I would really highly recommend on this topic. Um, the first of them is the one on the left um, by a guy called Ched Myers. And there's a quote from him. He argues that, he says, Jesus uses this parable. The reason he talks about the debt and the denarii is because he was aware of the fact that Ched Myers says it's usually economic marginalization that drives people into survival strategies like prostitution. Jesus uses this analogy because he's siding with the woman. He's telling the Pharisee that, if he committed to following Jesus' economics, and if the Pharisees were to do this, there might not even be an issue here. She might not be a sinful woman. She might just be a woman. You never know if there were full economic equality. She might even have a name in the story. 
The author of the second book is a guy called Matthew Colwell, and he says that historians have shown how debt throughout history has served as a principal mechanism behind the existence and maintenance of poverty. Throughout time, debt has been a principal reason why poverty still exists. One more quote from a guy called Ulrich Ducro. He says, the very first form of the Greek, Hellenistic, and Roman property economy, driven by money and accumulating monetary value, has had a destructive effect on social cohesion and the life of people and societies. Peasant farmers lost their land and their freedom through debt bondage, while the large landowners were able to live in growing luxury in the cities. This was most strongly opposed in ancient Israel, in the Jesus movement, and in early Christian communities. It was never meant to be like this. Structural poverty is not a thing that is meant to happen. There are two chapters in the Torah, which is the name that we give to the first five books of the Old Testament, that talk about this and specifically look at this problem of debt bondage. Deuteronomy 15 verses 1 to 81 talks about the concept of the Sabbath. Now we know the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath day holy. God created the world in six days and the seventh day he rests. But this concept goes through the Bible a lot more than it just does in Genesis 1 and 2. The idea is that every seven years the people of Israel would be released from any debt that they found themselves in. Israel at the time was an agrarian society. And so ownership of land was obviously hugely important. The cycle of poverty started when a family fell into debt, had to sell off some of its land to pay off the debt, therefore put themselves at the mercy of the rich landowners. And so a downward spiral starts where the family would find themselves with less and less land and would eventually become bond slaves selling their labor, often for a pittance, to try and pay off the debt that's now owed to the rich landowners. So the writer of Deuteronomy says to the people of Israel, we won't do this. We will be better than this. We will look out for the poor in our community. Every seven years, all debts are forgiven. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 says, the vision is that there would be no one in need among you. In the whole of the Israelite population, no one would be in need that's what the Sabbath was about. Sounds pretty revolutionary now. It sounded pretty revolutionary then. But it gets better. In Leviticus, in chapter 25, we learn about the concept of jubilee. Every 50 years, God's people are told to release every community member from debt, to return all the land to its original owners, and to free all slaves the reasoning was to remind Israel that the land belongs to God and to remind them that they had been slaves in Egypt and God had not brought them out of there, out of captivity, so that they could create a society in which they, God's people, then took slaves. The other great thing about Jubilee is that it doesn't just help the poor families who have gone into trouble, but it changes the attitudes of those at the top. Suddenly, there's no real point in trying to get more and more land and more and more money because every seven years, we forgive debts, and every 50 years, we start again. So fewer people at the bottom of the scale get into debt problems because there's not the incentive for those at the top to always go out and try and get more stuff. Now, 
I appreciate that this is two fairly massive concepts to try and throw into a Sunday morning, particularly after we spent the first five minutes of this talk working, how much, working out how much we'd pay for a telly. But I think they're massively important concepts. The problem is that when you do a talk like this, you talk about Sabbath and Jubilee, and some people will say, oh, that's great, but most people will be sitting there thinking, what in the world does that have to do with 21st century London? If we were to walk out of here now and say, we're now going to practice Jubilee, what difference is it actually going to make in Waterloo? And, you know, obviously, in some respects, you'd be right (laughs) with that. Um, But um, there's another book that I read recently um, called Beyond Tithing by Stuart Murray. Don't worry, we're not now going to go and talk about tithing as well. We're going to leave that to the giving bit, I would imagine, whoever's doing that talk in a few weeks' time. But he talks about how we can embrace the concept of Jubilee. Stuart Murray says that, obviously, most of the Jubilee practices can't easily be extracted from their social, religious, and economic context. Uh, 21st century London really is a different place to Old Testament Israel. Um, But Murray says that the legislation that formed the basis of the uh, Jubilee expressed certain values, hopes, and ideals which have always inspired Israel and always inspired Jesus. What is Jubilee about? What are those values, hopes, and ideals? It's about forgiving debts to reduce inequality. It's about trying to reduce the gap between rich and poor. It's about trying to put systems in place that stop that inequality from taking root in the first place. It's creative, redemptive, gracious economics. And I feel like we could do with a bit of that today. Jubilee is about putting those principles into practice. The New Testament church was founded in a different place. They were under Roman occupation, so they couldn't just sign a horn a sound a hole and every 50 years start again. They had to try and look at the principles of Jubilee and work out how they worked in first century Palestine. So what did they do? They thought, why should we wait 50 years to practice this kind of social justice? Let's do it every day. So we have that famous passage in Acts 2, which says they sold property and possessions and gave to anyone in need. Sabbath economics, Jubilee economics, reinvented for a new time. So here's the challenge I'll leave you with. How do we reinvent Sabbath economics today? How do we seek to create an economic system that works in 21st century London and is about forgiving debts to reduce inequality? Just a few quick practical thoughts. Could we be more generous? Could we forgive other people's debts by being more generous? A friend of mine recently bought a house from a couple that she knew in the church and um, she went to see it And the house was fantastic. She didn't say anything to the couple, but the asking price was just beyond her limit. She just said, it looks fantastic. I'll go away and have a think about it. That night, they emailed her and they said, we're taking £5,000 off the asking price. We really think that this is a great house and you'd be really happy here. And we want to try and do something for you. Now, this family that took £5,000 off the asking price, they're just a normal couple with normal jobs and two small kids. I know what that's like. I know they don't have £5,000 lying around. But they have decided that they are going to prioritise giving. So they took £5,000 off it and my friend bought the house. On the day they completed, they said, we don't think we've been generous enough. We're giving you three more. So my friend now owes £8,000 less to the mortgage company than she would have done had they not decided to practice this economic way of living. The same couple have a big people carrier because they've got a load of kids. And um, my sister, 
as a really small car. Last summer, she was going on holiday with some friends, and so she spoke to them, and they said, why don't we just swap cars for a week? You can have ours. Everybody can get into that one car, and then you can just take one car on holiday, and we'll just have yours for the week. The kids will be fine in that for a week. So that's what they did. My sister went away on holiday. She came back. She took their car back to them, and they said, oh, I um, uh, hope you don't mind. One thing happened when, um, when you were away. Um, I looked at the tires, and one of the tires was bald, and another one didn't really have a lot of life left in it. So we took it to the garage. And to be honest, when I got there, I looked at the other two and thought, they're probably not that long away either. So we replaced all the tires on your car for you. They've got a fund, this couple, where every month they put some money in, they call it a blessings fund, a separate savings account that they use to bless people. Normal couple, normal jobs, two kids, and a blessings fund. Now, my sister, when she heard about this, she said, I almost started to cry. It's not that I couldn't afford to change the tires myself, but it's the generosity that they've shown, the love that they've shown that overwhelmed me. Secondly, we talked a lot about debt advice already, but that is an option. It's a practical way that you can get involved. Could you become one of our debt advisors? We never advertise the debt advice center anymore because we already have a waiting list. People just find out about us because they've come into the food bank, because they've come to the schools here, because they've picked up a flyer from ages ago, because they've had a look on our website, because they've been referred by other people, and we can't cope with the demand. We currently manage over half a million pounds of other people's debts, but we could genuinely, we could take on 10 more clients tomorrow if we had enough trained advisors. It's a practical, real way of changing people's lives. You know, a guy came into the office a couple of weeks ago, and um, I'm not his advisor, but he'd had a letter that morning, and he was scared. This happens all the time. Often, uh, clients don't even open the letters. They just come in and say, I I can't look at this. But he'd opened it. He'd read it, but he just didn't understand what it said, because obviously it's in financial jargon, because all of these things are always in financial jargon, aren't they? And it was something really straightforward. And I just rang the creditor, and I said, look, his income and his outgoings haven't changed in the last year. Can he carry on paying at the same rate he's been paying for the last 12 months? And they said, yeah, of course he can. Send us an email to confirm. Sent them an email to confirm. Said to him, yeah, it's all fine. Just carry on. Just carry on with the standing order for another 12 months. When you get another letter, don't panic. Just come in here, and I'll give him another call. We'll do it for another 12 months. And he walked out, and he said, I feel like I'm floating out of here. I feel like I'm on a cloud floating out of here. One phone call. That's all it was. The training's two days. It's pretty straightforward. You can make a genuine difference to people's lives. What Sabbath economics about? It's about breaking that cycle of debt. That's what the Sabbath was about. That's what the Jubilee was about. They are the words that Cheryl used to me when I spoke to her about her family. It's about breaking a cycle of debt. My teenage daughters will live differently because the cycle of debt has been broken. That is Sabbath economics in 21st century London. One last example. Could we share our possessions better? I remember somebody telling me about a a big church they'd gone to where um, they just got a call one day saying, my fridge freezer's broken. I've no idea what I'm going to do. It's full of food. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then... um, the administrator for the church just said, okay, well, um, I, I don't know what I can do, but 
I'll, I'll see what I can do, and didn't really know what to say. This lady didn't even go to the church. She just rang the church. It was a big organization that was near her house, and she had nowhere else to turn. So the minister puts the phone down, and it rings again, and she picks it up, and it's somebody from the congregation who says, hey, um, we just bought a fridge freezer. Um, and do you know anybody who, um, who wants the old one? And she said, you're not going to believe this. So she gave them the address, and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa hang on a minute. Um, you're reading my address out. And she said, what are you on about? And it turned out that the lady who needed the fridge freezer lived about 100 yards down the road, on the same road. So they literally got it out, stuck it on a trolley, and walked it there. 20 minutes after this woman had phoned the church, and there was a fridge freezer standing outside the door. <laughs> you know, imagine if when that mum, when her fridge freezer breaks down, imagine if instead of walking to Bright House in Elephant and Castle and paying 1,500 quid over three years for a fridge freezer that's worth 279 quid, imagine if she could say, yeah, Oasis Church Waterloo, they gave me that fridge freezer because they practice a totally different method of economics there. They're not a church that's about getting your money. They're a church that's about redistribution of money. We're going to end by taking communion together. Um, And we'll read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, A couple of years ago when I was leading communion, I I mentioned a a bit of of this story. Um, We normally read these verses. um, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How many communion services do you think you've been in where people have read that? I reckon I've been in hundreds over the years. But the verses before it are interesting. Paul's referring to the Feast of Agape, which was a tradition that was practiced among the early followers of Jesus. Um, They were communal meals where followers got together to share food and pray together. Participants would bring their own food and they'd eat in a common room. But the reason that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth to go through the rules of this meal is that sometimes it would deteriorate, and it had deteriorated in Corinth, into just being an occasion for eating and drinking. And sometimes the wealthier members of the community would bring their own food and use it as an excuse for a display of their wealth. Look at the meat I've brought. Look at the expensive wine I've brought. And in the worst cases with Corinth, it had developed into two different rooms where the rich ate in a different room to the poor because in those times, who you were seen to be sharing a meal with was of the utmost importance. So just before these verses, you see these verses. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For Paul, the church was supposed to model an alternative society where there was no hierarchy, no rich or poor. But now, in the very meal that they share to show that they are part of this community of believers, there is inequality. And that's why Paul is writing. 
He goes on to say in verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Eat together. Share your resources. If someone is in need, meet that need. We'll go back to these last verses. And as Paul and the band come up, I invite you to to look at those verses as you come down to take some bread and some wine and consider what we've talked about. How can we forgive debt? How can we forgive radically, give radically, and live radically?